And we'll begin this evening's talk with uh, a few moments as though sitting under the Bodhi tree with Siddhartha Gautama 2,500 years ago. Towards the end of that long and now famous night under the bow tree, and after Mara, the personification of all of the dark and potentially destructive forces in the mind, had let fly the poison arrows of greed, aversion, and delusion at Siddhartha. The arrows that Mara hoped would stick and then distract Siddhartha from the clarity and the strength of his great vow and his courageous determination to fully awaken. Mara shot the last arrow that was left in the quiver, the arrow of doubt, self-doubt, accompanied by these words. What makes you think you have the right to be sitting here, where, and how you are? Just who do you think you are anyway? The Bodhisattva, the just about to be Buddha, protected within the great strength of his mindful presence, which was enlivened by a keen interest and a penetrating sense of investigation accompanied by clear discernment. This about-to-be Buddha, supported by the tremendous energy of his determination and flow of an effortless effort, imbued with an enlivening and refreshing joy, balanced within the deep power and cool ease of an unwavering and undistracted mind. Siddhartha Gautama sitting under the bow tree that night, that particular night, with unshakable stability, with an evenness and balance of receptive presence, as though he were an immovable mountain. With all of these qualities, all of these factors of mind and heart perfectly in place, in response to Mara's challenge, the Bodhisattva, with his amazing grace, he just simply reached down and touched the earth with the fingertips of his right hand, letting Mara know that the earth was bearing witness to his right to be sitting where and how he was. And Mara was defeated, never again to have any power over the Bodhisattva who was soon to become a Buddha. And so we sit, maybe not always exactly like the Buddha sat on that night 2,500 years ago. But we sit, we practice, and we sit and practice with sincerity 
and determination. At home, maybe alone, and maybe with your sangha, your practice community, and now here in retreat. As awakening beings, as we practice, the particular qualities of heart and mind that were also perfectly in place within Siddhartha that night under the bow tree, as we practice, these same capacities of heart and mind continue to develop and deepen and mature within ourselves. It's inevitable, actually. It's inevitable that this happens if we keep on practicing. This evening we'll explore the quality or the factor of mind that's really the most fundamental underlying factor of our practice. Mindfulness. As we explore together this evening, allow the words to be a touch point or a pointing out towards directly connecting with mindfulness within yourselves, which is facilitated by what I like to call listening from the heart rather than listening from the head. And in support of this, it's very helpful to relax deeply in and through the body. So now let's just take a couple of moments to drop into the body with a bright, easy attention. Relaxing from head to toe. And letting the whole body, mind, and heart deeply relax into a very simple, direct presence. And with an open mind, an open heart, simply hearing. So mindfulness. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being like a precious gem and that it's supported by seclusion, impartiality, and renunciation. The very conditions we have available here in retreat. A pervasive and deep Mindfulness, along with a calm, concentrated mind, are really key factors for the mind and heart to ripen into the letting go that's necessary for awakening. I often think of mindfulness as the mother, the great mother of all the factors of mind that are necessary for awakening. In fact, the great mother of the whole of our practice. In a sense, it's really the factor of mind that gives birth 
to all of the other factors that are necessary for liberation. The Buddha spoke about mindfulness as being the chief. So maybe a kind of male-female way of speaking about it. Putting it together, we could say mindfulness is the chief mother. And when it really begins to be established in us, it's the ingredient that offers us our greatest protection. In Pali, the word for mindfulness is sati. And it's sometimes translated as memory or to remember. And if we break that word down, remember, we could say to remember, to reconnect, to connect or reconnect, to remember to reconnect to the present moment's experience of body and mind. I think for many of us, at least at times, we forget to be mindful because of our strong habituated conditioning to not remember, to not directly, freshly, purely connect to the present moment's experience, but in fact to remain resting in the inertia of our habits. Once in a Dhamma discussion, With friends, someone asked, what makes mindfulness a spiritual practice? Really a good question. Mindfulness is such a common word, pretty common in our culture these days, and and which is a good thing on one level. On another level, some of its depth and some of its potency is dissipated because of its common usage. So what is it that makes mindfulness a spiritual practice. The great intimacy of mindfulness. This moment's experience is just this, absolutely believing our eyes, ears, nose, tongue, touch, mind, and heart. Absolutely believing the body and the mind, meaning absolutely believing what comes to be known through cultivating a powerful, direct, immediate, mindful awareness. Really being receptive to what is. Without the forethought of concepts, past experience, or ideas of how we think it is, or should be, or could be. And as Krishnamurti says, beginning as though you don't know anything about it and moving from innocence to innocence. This relationship to experience is sometimes called the don't-know mind. With this great intimacy of mindful presence opening us to understanding the way it really is, which may appear at times so clear and so simple that we can hardly believe it. The Buddha's mindfulness asks us to not remain resting in the inertia of our old habits, 
but to really meet the experience of the moment with a fresh, connected intimacy. To come close, really close, and see how it is. Mindfulness doesn't kind of float or skim along the surface of things. It connects, going right into the object. And yet, at the same time, it's not a sticky or fixed kind of connection. Mindful attention is a very clear, fluid connection that lights on an object just long enough and deep enough to know it. This is really the flavor of attention that allows for a penetrating investigation and clear comprehension of whatever it is that it's connecting to. Sometimes the words mindfulness and awareness are used interchangeably by various teachers. And I think, uh, to clarify some of that, I consider the word mindfulness, or the activity of mindfulness, to be the active aspect of awareness. Mindfulness is a non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment's experience. A non-judging, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting orientation to present moment's experience. And at its best, a purely receptive relationship to whatever's presenting itself in the present moment. And of course, we pay attention, as you know, to a whole range of experience, including things that we usually do quite mechanically. Breathing, walking, moving the body, seeing, smelling, hearing, tasting, touching, thinking. We pay attention to phenomena that's pleasant, that might be wonderful and easy to pay attention to to be with and pay attention to. And, of course, we give attention to experience that's unpleasant, experience that may be difficult to be with and pay attention to. We open to all of it, no parts left out. The very stuff of our lives is our path to liberation. It's not, well, I could really be mindful if only I wasn't so restless. Or, I I know I could be really mindful if I didn't feel so much anger or so much sadness or so much pain. And I'm sure I could be really mindful if I wasn't sick. If I felt better, I know I could be mindful. And I'm absolutely certain I could be quite mindful if I wasn't so caught up in thought or so attracted or attached to beauty. Mindfulness is about living in the action. Living in the action of the body, mind, and heart. Living in the present moment's experience. And in a sense, we forget ourself. We lose our self, so to say, in what is. And so there's just what is. 
without anything added or needing to be added, without taking anything away or needing to take away anything. With mindful awareness, we have the possibility of not thinking, I'm doing this or I'm doing that. In fact, the moment that we think, I'm doing this, we're creating or recreating a sense of a separate self, creating a separation, a disconnection from the reality of the way things really are, and living in an idea. The idea of I, the idea of me and mine, instead of living directly in the action. Sometimes practitioners, or yogis as they're often called in Theravada Buddhist retreats, sometimes we think of mindfulness as a kind of magic. Though not the magician's magic that creates an illusion and then pulls us into the illusion, into, pulls us into that delusion. The magic and the really great beauty of mindfulness is that it takes us out of the illusion, out of delusion, directly into reality. Without it, we're bound. Without it, we're imprisoned in the assumed appearance of things. And we get caught again and again in reactivity and in attachment to these not clearly seen appearances. And the result being that we unnecessarily suffer in this believed unreality. And again, a few words from Krishnamurti. If we don't know what mindfulness is, we're like a blind person in a world of bright color, shadows, and moving light. No matter who we are, where or how we live, all of us, we all want to live with ease. All of us want happiness. And it seems that most of us hope and maybe even assume that much of our life experience at any given moment is permanently in place. And of course, from myriad perspectives, we harbor a hope that our life will be very deeply fulfilling. We want life to maybe suit our passing fancies, our expectations, our deepest desires. And as it is in relationship to this, most people spend most of their time and energy trying to accomplish this through external experiences by getting this or that, or him or her, or doing this and that, or going here and there. And we go for, we try for sustaining satisfaction and contentment through the constantly changing world of our senses and thoughts, as well as through the myriad and constantly changing relationships that go on throughout all, throughout all of our life. And some of the time we know, at least intellectually, 
and sometimes more deeply, that none of this really works. The Buddha spoke about happiness that's beyond our ordinary experience of pleasure. He said, happiness arises when we're mindful. And so we take the Buddha's words to heart and really look closely to sense, see, and know our experience directly. It's as though our meditation practice it, it's excuse me, it's really through our meditation practice that mindfulness is cultivated. Mindfulness happens, we could say, when we really bring our attention, we really truly bring our attention to the present moment. And so we practice this over and over and over again, moment by moment by moment. Once we relinquish the belief that there's a more spiritual, perfect, or right, or useful moment than the one we happen to be in, in any moment, when we are truly and holy, then, if we once we relinquish that erroneous belief, then we're really, truly, and wholly embracing our life and infusing it with the energy for awakening. Our practice is one of intimacy, really the very deepest intimacy with our own experiences, which as practice develops and as it expands and as it deepens and matures, it becomes an intimacy, a kind of profound heart connection with all beings, all things. The direction of mindfulness is to be aware, intimately aware of it, whatever it is in the moment, to see and know what is, what really truly is. How is it in this present moment, and this present moment, in this present moment. This is really the basic foundation of all Buddhist practice. How is it in experiencing the eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, touch? How is it in experiencing the mind? How is it really? Not what you hope it is or want it to be or imagine it to be or don't want it to be. A mindful relationship to present moment experience is what allows clarity and true understanding, insight to arise, to really just simply and naturally arise, which it inevitably does. We don't do anything to make it happen. The truth is actually not very far away at all. It's right here. It's ever-present, immediately close, always and everywhere. And it's our greatest protection.
Some years ago when I was teaching a class in Taos on mindfulness, an evening class once a week, people would come in and share something from their uh, week at, in the evening class about in relationship to what we'd been talking about and looking at and practicing with around mindfulness. One evening a woman came in who was in the class and said that morning she'd been watering her garden. She'd watered her garden hundreds of times over the years. But she said that morning when she watered her garden it was as though it was for the first time. She felt like it was the first time she'd ever been there and really been present watering her garden. And then after she shared that she said How have we survived so long without being mindful? And she went on to say, Terrible things are done when mindfulness isn't present. The Buddha Dhamma is about transforming the mind, transforming the heart. Without mindfulness, it's as though we're living life through binoculars that are out of focus. Our perspective, our perception is blurred. And we experience life through the filters of ideas and preconceptions, opinions, fears, judgments, and similar past experiences. One aspect of our incredibly comprehensive practice is to bring a mindful attention in fact to these very filters themselves when we notice them. Meditation practice grounded in a concentrated mindful awareness is about bringing everything into a clear sharp focus to see things as they truly are, as though for the first time. Without judgment, with a mind that's fresh, often called beginner's mind. So just a simple, a personal story illustrating this, which some of you have heard before. When one of my grandsons was two and a half years old, uh, they were he and his uh, mother and father were living in Pennsylvania, and I went to visit them and We took a walk his mother and i and and this little boy took a walk uh, behind the house down the hill into the forest that was back there. It was very soon after they'd moved there, and this little boy saw a pine cone on the ground, picked it up. It was the first time he'd ever seen a pine cone. He picked it up. And he smelled it. He put it up to his nose, smelling. Stuck it to his ear. Stuck his tongue out, licked it. Looked at it every which way, turned it every possible way looking at it. Really present and investigating this thing that he had never seen before. Well, his mother and I, being a good mother and grandmother, very dutifully said to him, it's a pine cone. And he looked up at us kind of quizzically. 
and but is a good boy, he repeated, pine cone. And then he forgot it and went on, smelling, tasting, hearing, seeing, feeling it with his fingers, all the bumps and ins and outs of it. Back to his very direct experience of pine cone with his very totally fresh, open beginner's mind. This is an attitude of mind that we can learn, or maybe more accurately relearn, to bring into our life as a whole. And it's transformative. It's transformative and healing. This month's practice will offer you many, many opportunities to meet and engage in experience, your own experience, with this fresh, open, beginner's mind. One definition of these teachings and practices is that they're really the best medicine. The best medicine to make us well in the deepest and most profound sense. Well as in freedom from the sickness of confusion, anguish, fear. Freedom from the restless wanting that stems from ongoing dissatisfaction. Freedom from suffering. There are four domains of mindfulness, four ways of setting up or establishing mindfulness in the here and now. And this evening we'll explore the first of these domains, which is paying attention to the body in the body. Just the body as such. Not one's ideas about it or interpretations of it. And of course there are many and varied and specific aspects of the body to notice and to give a careful attention to. And as all of you well know, one of our primary uh, practice orientations to the body is mindfulness of breathing. The development of the mind and the understanding that's accessible through mindfulness of breath is potentially profound. In making the simple sensations of the rising and the falling movement of the breath in the belly a basic ground for mindful attention, I've been very deeply grateful and even awed at times at the depth and the breadth of the purification of the heart and mind that happens, as well as for what comes to be seen and understood with a simple and careful attention to the direct experience of breath. So just now for a moment, close your eyes and let the attention drop into the breath. Mindfully absorb into the rising and falling movement of the breath in the belly without any self or with as little self 
as possible, meaning directly connecting to the experience, the sensations, and the movement of the breath in the belly itself. And now just very simply notice, are you trying to control, are you trying to manipulate the breath? Or are you simply allowing the breath to breathe itself? Very important to notice this without judgment, without self-recrimination, and without pride. Just noticing. In a moment of clear seeing, there's often a sense of relief. And as a friend of mine says, seeing is relieving. We might at times particularly notice each breath, each inhalation and exhalation very directly as sensation, as movement, as vibration maybe in the area of the body where we connect with the breath. Maybe noticing it right when it begins and staying with it all the way through to the end. And maybe actually noticing the ending noticing the cessation of an exhalation and then very clearly noticing the beginning of the next inhalation. Or we may very simply just notice the movement of the in and out breathing, the in and out breathing in the belly. Just this which helps to cultivate an increasingly quiet, tranquil, and peaceful breath and an overall body-mind calm, which is a very good support towards developing a more refined, mindful attention. The body and the body, mindfulness of the four postures, Not our ordinary, everyday, quite casual way of noticing our bodily activity, but a closer, more intimate, ongoing, and careful attention to the body in every position. Standing, sitting, lying down, walking, and the various movements of the body in getting up and down, flexing and extending the arms and the legs, turning, lifting, and carrying even bringing mindful attention of the body in the body to the experiences of falling asleep and waking, as Sayadaw mentioned the other day. 
Who's moving? Who's lying down? Who's breathing? Is there a someone, a me, an I, behind this walking, this standing, this sitting, this movement? Beginning to see the postures and the movement of the body just as it is in itself. Can standing be known just simply as standing? Sitting as just simply sitting? Walking as just simply walking? Without the layer of I am or the internal feeling that this is me walking, this is me sitting, etc. Once many years ago, the Venerable Saidao Upandita asked me in a practice interview, is there a woman, a man, or a person when you're mindful of and noting walking, standing, sitting, or any bodily sensation? And for just a brief moment, I was caught by the question, which in retrospect I decided was a kind of test of my practice at the time. But very quickly in that practice interview, there was a spontaneous reflection and a response to Saito Pandita. And I said, no. No, there's no woman, no man, no anybody known when I'm really directly connected with and mindful of whatever bodily phenomena is happening. So I think a good observation and question you might ask yourself at some point. And maybe through the great intimacy of mindful awareness of the body in the body, we also begin to notice the ongoing flow of conditions that every single moment of experience arises out of. So for instance, the intention to, followed by action or inaction. In the intimacy of mindfulness, we might begin to notice where the energy of intention, where the energy of volition begins where it starts from and how it feels in our body. I don't in some way independent, independently, mysteriously, isolated, in an isolated way, stand up or not stand up or sit or lift an arm or take a step or speak particular words. If we think and feel that our actions come solely from a place of a separate, isolated I and me, will eventually, or maybe quite quickly, experience some degree of suffering. Our actions of body, mind, and speech are always, always a response or a reaction in relationship to something that occurred in our immediate field of experience or somewhere in our past experience. 
as mindful awareness of the body in the body blossoms, there's a very natural, non-conceptual, intuitive, growing understanding of the subtler causes of suffering. And this begins to take hold. And it can open our heart in an unimaginable expanse or to an unimaginable expanse of compassion in relationship to all beings. How identified are you? How strong is the clinging to this constantly changing and totally interrelated phenomena we call our body. A number of years ago now I had a student named Roy who was very a deep very deeply dedicated practitioner right up into his dying moment. And he was dying of AIDS related complications. And I was sitting with him one afternoon in the hospital, sitting beside his bed as he was lying in bed. At that point, there wasn't much left of his body. And as he was lying there, he stretched his arm up overhead very slowly. And as he stretched it, he was turning it around and around, back and forth, and looking at it very carefully, very mindfully, with great interest. Took him a while, did it very slowly. And once it got up there and he continued looking at it with mindfulness and interest, he said in a very cool and yet odd way, all he said was, wow. I get goosebumps when I say that, (laughs) repeat that story. The form, the posture, and the movements of the body are totally dependent or interdependent on conditions. They arise dependent on conditions, just as, for instance, does the arising of anger or the sensation of coolness on the skin or the liking or the disliking of some experience or Roy's body being as thin and as light as a reed at that point. Everything happens because of a whole set of conditions coming together moment by moment by moment. Choices are made, but in truth they too are always a product of the play of various conditions. Can we give such a clear, unfettered, and intimate attention to the body itself, its movements and its process of intention, and the process of intention, that we begin to directly experience this truth? The next domain of mindfulness of the body that the Buddha points us towards is giving attention to the parts of the body. All uh, 32 of them, as it's classically taught in the Buddhist texts. 
hair, skin, muscles, bones, all the various internal organs and fluids. In your practice here in retreat, uh, you most likely notice them as they make themselves known, such as the intestines or the, the bladder, heart, lungs, maybe the liver, mucus, saliva, etc. The classical 32 parts of the body practice isn't one that's uh, very often taught here in the West, though it can really be quite a powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's ideas and identification of and with this body as being a solid entity, of it being mine and being me. And I have no doubt that you have noticed many parts of your body, even during these first few days of the retreat. But how often have you noticed them in a mindful way? How identified, for instance, are you with the hair on your head or the lack of it or the color of it? How do you attend to the experiences of your intestine and the digestive processes therein? Or a moment or many moments experience of the heart? How do you experience your skin? This bag of flesh that holds all of the various contents of the body. How do you experience, or how often do you experience your nails, teeth, saliva, sweat, mucus, or any of part of your body or bodily experience with what I like to call the extraordinary qualities of mindful awareness? A non-judgmental, non-manipulative, non-grasping, non-rejecting, non-self-identified kind of attention just the body in the body, without the layers of ideas and interpretations and concerns about it, just the body as a body. This can be a very powerful practice in beginning to dissolve one's conceptual ideas of solidity and identification with one's own body and in relationship to other bodies. And some words from the Buddha. Abiding, contemplating the body as a body, internally and externally. He or she abides independent, not clinging to anything in the world. This is how a yogi abides, contemplating the body as a body. So just for a moment now, consider, how do you identify yourself? For most of us, if not all of us, a primary and a large part of our personal identification is related to our body. We identify ourselves in good part through rupa, the Pali word that translates as material form or materiality. So, consider this for a moment. 
in relationship to yourself. I'm a woman. I'm a man. I'm thin or fat or too thin or too fat. I'm tall or short or of average height. I'm good-looking, handsome, beautiful, ugly, plain, attractive, unattractive. I have dark skin. I have light skin. I have good skin. I have bad skin. My nose is large, too big, or small, or cute. I'm wrinkled and old and weak, or maybe I'm young and strong and smooth-skinned. And on and on and on it goes. With all of these personal identities constantly changing over the years, or just within days, or just within moments in our mind. Even though we engage tremendous effort and energy and time in clinging to these various identities. Really, there's no place to hang our identity hat for more than a few moments, if that. No place to rest in this constantly changing relative perception an idea of who we think we are. Another important and potentially profound insight, insightful uh, aspect of mindfulness that can be established in relationship to the body is related to the fact that our bodies are essentially no different from any other rupa, any other form. Our human form is of the same elements as any and every other form. Nothing more, nothing less. So potentially a non-ordinary way to cut through the concept of this body as a solid and static entity, to cut through the I am identification. The Buddha offered a profound teaching and very specific practice in conjunction with this teaching. And if we sincerely and seriously take it up, it can be a window opening us to the direct experience, discernment, and understanding of one aspect of ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of rupa, the ultimate reality of form, one aspect of the reality of how it really is, how, what, this body, as well as every other form, really is. The teaching and practice is about directly discerning the four great essentials or the uh, four great elements, earth, water, fire, air, or wind. Through directly experiencing the specific characteristics of each of these, these elements in the body in relationship to sensation, That's what the practice is. And doing this when you're sitting, standing, lying down, and when the body's moving. And within the discernment 
of the breath itself. So this evening I just like to offer the characteristics of each of these elements. And we uh, will probably at some point in the close uh, future look at this practice a little more directly. So the characteristics of the earth element. Hardness, roughness, heaviness, softness, smoothness, lightness. The characteristics, this is all sensorial that we can experience sensorially. The characteristics of the water element, flowing, cohesion. The characteristics of the fire element, heat and warmth or coolness, coldness. And the characteristics of the wind or the air element, supporting and pushing. All and each of these bodily sensations are very readily available for us to experience and be mindful of in any moment. How intimately, how mindfully connected are you to these most basic and universal experiences? This body in its elemental nature. Essentially no different than any other rupa. Essentially no different than any other form. The last instruction from the Buddha in relationship to this first establishment of mindfulness is the contemplation of the stages of decay in a corpse. Maybe seemingly uh, uh, not something we have much of an opportunity to do in a retreat setting. But the truth of the matter is there are many kinds of corpses around to observe in a place like this. Insects. Maybe birds and other creatures. And certainly the corpses of plants and trees and flowers all over the place. All forms of life are mortal. All forms, all rupas are mortal. They have the nature to die and decompose or to just deconstruct and decompose. Consequently, consequently it's possible to observe this directly. I've been in retreat in various places over the years and at times quite purposefully observed the dying process of flowers and grasses and continued over time to observe them go through all of the changes that things do, all things do, as and after they die. And once when I was on retreat with a few friends uh, in Cape Cod, Massachusetts, where we rented a house on the shore of the ocean for a couple of months to practice together, I had the great good fortune, maybe good fortune only in the world of Dhamma practice, to come upon a dead seal on the beach. Every day I would walk and on, the, on the sand. So when I saw, found this dead seal, every day for a month <clears throat> I walked down to that body 
and I sat with it for a little while every single day, observing and letting the process of decomposition and decay, which in this particular instance was happening quite quickly because it was being helped along by the many seagulls who found this seal's decaying flesh to be very delicious food. This daily practice during that month of that retreat was really a heart-mind changing experience for me on many levels. Ajahn Sumedho, who until uh, relatively recently was the abbot of Amaravati Monastery in England and who is the senior Western monk of the uh, Thai forest tradition of Ajahn Chah, tells about a time when he was living in the monastery in Thailand and asked uh, that he be able to spend a part of a day practicing in the city morgue. And because he was a monk at that time, the authorities let him go in, although he said they were uh, quite reluctant, but they did let him go in. And he said that all of his sense doors, which included his conditioned mind, were fully challenged, or actually I think he said fully assaulted. He said the first thing that hit him was the smell, which he said almost drove him to run out the door. But he stayed there, very mindfully present, and he said, and little by little, it became tolerable. Just a smell, just a scent. He spoke about his long-standing and very deeply embedded assumptions regarding this package of the human form being completely undone in his mind and heart as he took in the various stages of decay that were all around him in the morgue. And he mentioned that at one point he looked up on the ceiling and saw all sorts of parts, as he put it, stuck to the ceiling, which he found quite puzzling at first. And then he realized that the very bloated body that was right in front of him could explode at any moment, which he said he dearly hoped it would not. (laughs) And he said it didn't, which he was grateful for. He said that when he went back out on the street after that approximately half day of practice in the city morgue, he said he saw people in a radically new way and with a radically wide open heart. It isn't about being morbid or strange in some way. All forms, all rupas, living and non-living, are mortal. And we're so attached to forms. Probably, first and foremost, our own form. And also all sorts of other forms. For many of us, our attachment is so strong that most of the time we live with an almost constant and often unrecognized desire for an attachment to, for instance, forms that please us, forms that are beautiful to us, or forms that are amusing or interesting to us, 
or simply the just-taken-for-granted familiar forms. I think what is actually strange and amazing is that fairly often we think and act as if we and they won't change and won't die. Which if we begin to see this habitual way of thinking and acting, if we begin to see it closely, we find that it produces an almost constant state of subtle or maybe not so subtle tension and stress in our heart, mind, and body. The Buddha's instruction to attend to corpses of whatever form can be helpful to towards cutting through this state of tension and stress, cutting through clinging, cutting through suffering. How do you know the body? How are you established in this first domain, this first foundation of mindfulness? Mindfulness practice trains us to drop into the body again and again. What we find when we connect and look carefully in the body are sensations. Much of the drama of our thought, feelings, and actions begin with sensations. Through mindfulness, we train ourselves to be in the body to receive them. To be present with the sensations of our body, it's not an act of will. It's an act of unconditional acceptance. One aspect of metta, really. With grace and at least some degree of equanimity. This acceptance implies not fighting or resisting what's presenting itself. Not wanting things to be different and not concealing or hiding from the moment's experience of the body. And in such moments, we feel and intuitively know our activity as belonging to life. Some very simple, ordinary examples that relate to our life here in retreat, and of course, also outside of the formal retreat setting. For instance, we might wash our dishes here as an act of generosity and love. And in that sense, then, as a holy act. We open the door, clearly sensing and knowing what the wrist is doing, what the hand is doing, through the sensations that we experience. Maybe we feel our body contract, turning away from cold or very hot weather. And we catch ourselves. And we consciously, with mindful awareness, rise up to meet it. The choice to be mindfully aware is sometimes an act of courage. The essential practice is to return to whatever presents itself in our experience from moment to moment. To feel and know the actual physical sensations of our aliveness. 
in relationship to the various movement practices that some of you might be doing during this retreat. Maybe some stretching, or maybe some yoga. And with walking meditation. And with our ordinary, everyday movements. Movement invites attention. It asks us to practice a kind of devotion to ourselves. And not in a self-centered way. But as an act of respect. An act of loyalty. Instead of abandoning ourselves, we can learn to inhabit this body in a wholesome and wise way. Someone once said, and I'm not sure, but it may have been the famous dancer and choreographer Martha Graham, the body is tremendously homesick for us, and it waits patiently for our return. Though we may have ignored its invitations for many years, when we do say yes, it's immediately available, full of life and full of know-how. And all of a sudden, we find that we need no training, we could say, to be fully alive, that we only lack the determination to feel and know our aliveness. The body is an excellent meditation object. It will always tell the truth. So, for instance, if you break a leg or break an arm, the body is not going to give off pleasant feeling. And it doesn't have the capability of getting lost in the past or project itself into the future. And it's the meditation object that most easily bridges the gap between formal and in the formal and informal aspects of our meditation practice. And also mindful presence in the body can often be quite a safe haven when thoughts or emotions are raging and maybe feeling too overpowering to be with. We can connect to the body then. And lastly, in, not lastly, but lastly in this context, um, I think we all experienced, at least to some degree, that we're living in a time when the very rapid development of technology and the incredible pace of our culture are making it more and more difficult to stay connected to our bodies. Consequently, cultivating the intention to practice with this first domain of mindfulness becomes more and more important. Mindfulness practice is kind of like a treasure hunt. Within the framework of our practice, we, each of us, we find the way. And because each of us has experienced specific conditioning along the way of our lives, many aspects of the path and its fruits uniquely emerge 
in relationship to this conditioning for each of us. The treasures, the fruits that we discover along the way of our practice are healing, beautiful, and the simple universal truths of the way of things. This is what sets us free. And some words from the Buddha. There's one thing when cultivated and regularly practiced leads to deep spiritual intention, to peace, to mindfulness and clear comprehension, to vision and knowledge, to a happy life here and now, and to the culmination of wisdom and awakening. And what is that one thing? It is mindfulness centered on the body. In closing the talk this evening, I'd like to offer you a wonderful and inspiring instruction from the Buddha that we can offer to ourselves anytime. And this is from the Majjhima It's called A Single Excellent Night. Let me not revive the past or on the future build my hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let me see each presently arisen state. Let me know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly by day, by night, it is in him, her, the peaceful sage has said, who has had a single excellent night. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. And thank you for listening to the Dhamma.
May each of you have a single excellent night tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.